this week we'll continue in our uh, Lenten study of Lamentations. And um, it's really a, a kind of a difficult, had really a difficult time of preparing and figuring out a way um, into this text. But uh, I'm going to read uh, for you um, from, from this chapter just uh, a few verses. And, but I encourage you guys to get, we have in the foyer, and we'll have them throughout Lent, um, one of the scripture reading cards, because we're really trying to encourage this reading um, and repetitive reading and, and the sort of thing that can happen if you if you really sit in a text. Um, and so each week, there's five weeks in Lent and five chapters in Lamentations, and we're pairing a chapter with a photograph. Uh, we have to partner with this amazing Durham photographer, Justin Cook, uh, to use some of his uh, photos of Durham um, and pair them with this text. And, Hopefully the Spirit does something uh, in you pairing the, the text in that image. This is from chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, and, and number 14. He has wrecked his own booth like a garden. He destroyed his places for festivals. The Lord made Zion forget both festival and Sabbath. In his fierce rage, he scorned both monarch and priest. The Lord rejected his altar, he abandoned his sanctuary, he handed Zion's palace walls over to enemies. They shouted in the Lord's own house as if it were a festival day. The Lord planned to destroy daughter Zion's wall. He stretched out a measuring line. He didn't stop himself from devouring. He made barricades and walls wither. Together they wasted away. Zion's gates sank into the ground. He broke and shattered her bars. Her king and her officials are now among the nations. There is no instruction. Even her prophets couldn't find a vision from the Lord. And then in verse 14, your prophets gave you worthless and empty visions. They didn't reveal your sin so as to prevent your captivity. Instead, they showed you worthless and incorrect prophecies. Father, uh, pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you open up this text to us and open up our hearts to you. Uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I, as I mentioned, I had a hard time with a way into this text. Um, so, I, I want to I want to talk about fasting a little bit today, using using this as a bit of a springboard. I think my difficulty um, in finding what to say about this was kind of twofold. Um, like when I was talking about this with Sarah, uh, I hope I don't steal her punchline for a few weeks, but she said when she um, thinks about having to prepare to preach Lamentation, she, she, she's thinking about just like, standing up there and crying for 25 minutes in public, you know? But I think, I think there are kind of two difficulties when we read and try to talk about uh, something like scripture, like Lamentations. First, that we have to dig into suffering. That's really hard to do well. And second, we have to, to dig into poetry. That's like, you know, the digging into suffering is like, 
it's like trying, you know, you can come off so trite. It's like you're talking to someone with inoperable cancer and you're trying to like relate to them by talking about that one time you hurt yourself and for a minute you didn't know if it was going to get better. You know, like that's what it feels like a little bit or like with, with poetry, it kind of feels like trying to like explain a poem or like explain a joke, which if you have to explain a joke, you should never tell that joke. Um, or like someone, I think it might have been, it might have been Elvis Costello once uh, was talking about music journalism and, and talking about writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Like you just shouldn't do that, and it doesn't make sense to do that. Um, but we're going to jump in a little bit to Lamentations Two. Because Lamentations Two is is devastation, but it's a well constructed devastation. Like if you look at it on paper, especially in the Hebrew, it's a 22 verse poem of chaos, but it's ordered with the start of each Hebrew letter. So there's a rhythm and there's an expectation and there's a framework, a skeleton holding together all this chaos. This book, um, we're so used to flipping in our Bibles, we even have like mnemonics to get us to places in the Bibles, or, or maybe we just use our phones so we don't have to be embarrassed when it's hard to find limitations. But we're so used to seeing the names of books in our Bibles, but an interesting thing is like those are all kind of artificial and, and, and just based on what we know them as. So like the Gospel according to Matthew is because we think Matthew wrote it or someone named Matthew or in that tradition. The Book of Lamentations is known by the first word in Lamentations, and it shows up again in the first word of chapter two, and it's just how. Like, <laughs> it's called the book of how. How could this have happened? Like, it's the book of that audible sigh of just, like, anguish. Just, that's Lamentations. This is going to be rough, is what it's saying. So what unfolds in our chapter is someone trying to come to grips with death. The death of their city, chapter one was kind of like a funeral dirge. It wasn't, chapter one's not even a true lament because it's, it, it doesn't even give way to hope. It's just a survey of devastation in the city. They're trying to come to grips with the death of all they've known. We, we think Jeremiah had a hand in writing Lamentations, and we love the Jeremiah greeting card that says, I, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. But those plans have been like laid waste, and that's what Lamentations is about. And finally, this is the death of all hope is happening here. So, like, I love that Katie sang and picked we will feast in the house of Zion, but that is like such an ironic song to sing when you're when you're studying Lamentations because it's exactly Zion and it's exactly that feast that is just over. That can't happen ever again. It would have been preposterous. It would have been like singing a Mardi Gras march like while Hurricane Katrina was happening. And it, like shortly after they got there, and, and that was actually a profoundly hopeful thing, but it would have been absurd in the midst. 
And of course, Zion, Jerusalem was that place we sang about God with us. It was that signifier that God was with his people. Like even if God's people were were struggling elsewhere, even if they were in exile, even if if it didn't look like God was in charge in Jerusalem, God was in charge. Jerusalem was the was a sign of their hope. So for Jerusalem to be gone, their hope was gone. Maybe you've been there in some small way. Like some time in your life where there was just no way forward. Like everything you ever hoped for was now kind of closed off. It could have been in a relationship. It could have been in a tragic event. It could have been in the death of someone you loved. Lamentations talks about that feeling as terror on every side. Fear, like in Dolby surround sound. Like every angle was filled with terror. This is even more disconcerting when all along your life before this you've relied on God to surround you. Like God has been your surround. And now it's terror. Their vision for the future was completely cut off, and, and, and now they're questioning everything. Um, it, it's strange, they're, they're questioning everything, but they're, they're still addressing God. Even as they blame God, they're addressing God. God is still somewhere in the picture, even if they're negotiating how to figure that out. You see, this God that used to kind of sign off on their hopes, now those hopes don't exist, and so now that God gets blamed, it's maybe one step, they have one foot out the door from not even talking to God at all. Lamentation says, my Lord has become like an enemy to me. If you've ever felt this, like, this should be some, some bit of strange comfort. Like, it, it, I think if you really press most people, it's not that they don't believe in God, it's that they they just don't really like the idea that the bad things that have happened to them are under the control of good God. Lamentations is wrestling with that. You've become like an enemy to me. A few years ago, there was this really prestigious poet named Christian Wyman. He grew up in a Baptist home in Texas, but um, was kind of at the forefront of his industry, like edited this uh, prestigious, like the Banner Poetry Journal, held down a professorship post at Yale, and then on his 39th birthday, less than a year after he got married, he found out he had an incurable blood cancer. Um, he, he writes with this voice, this Lamentations voice. This is a poem of his called Hammer is the prayer, and, and even in that, uh, even even in that title, and even in the way he's constructed this, you you, you get the sense of this site of destruction. That all you can do is swing a hammer at this hopelessness. He says, "There's no consolation in the thought of God." He said, slamming another nail in another house, another havoc that hath taken. Grace is not consciousness, nor is it beyond. To hell with remembrance, to hell with heaven. Hammer is the prayer of the poor and the dying. 
in the wind and some lordless random comes to rest and all the despited dust within. Peace comes to the hinterlands of our minds, too remote to know, but peace nonetheless. You see, in, in this, this is not a dirge, this is a lament because it's, it's already tilting towards hope, this peace in the hinterlands that's too remote to know, but it's peace and it's somewhere out there, maybe just before, just beyond our reach. You, you get this defiant rebuilding that maybe all you can do is swing a hammer at the problem, even though you don't think it's ever going to get better. I think this is kind of the, the shape of our Lenten lives. That's why the Christian calendar calls us into this 40-day season of repentance, of ashes, ultimately the devastation of Jesus, our very hope, hung brutally on a cross. It takes us that long to get there. And we're, we're supposed to do that annually. Maybe even more frequently than annually. Before giving way to the unlikely hope the unlikely hinterland peace of Eastern Resurrection. I wonder if it's this sort of imaginative rhythm, and this sort of <coughs> bodily practice, I wonder if that isn't our best way to engage with lamentations. That we shouldn't study it as much as we should kind of do it, or learn how to do it. That lament of others whether it's people we know and, and run across our neighbor who has just lost someone dear to them and doesn't know anything anymore, or if we read this text, our best way to engage with lament is to participate in it. If you leave today with nothing else, <laughs> leave with the directive that when someone else is lamenting, when their world is falling apart in like, a big way, or it's even, it's more tempting when their world is falling apart in like a small, ridiculous way. Like, don't study them, don't explain to them, don't like parse out the hope that they could or should have. Like, your job in, in that moment, in that encounter, is not to fix them, it's just to be present to them. And it's to, in some small or temporary way, to participate in that lament with them, in that pain and that suffering. And so I think one of the ways we practice this, and it's a distinctly the Christian practice, is this discipline of lament and this discipline of fasting. And fasting. First of, all, first of all, I think it's it's supremely biblical, even though we don't do it a whole lot. <laughs> um, myself included. I'm not good at this. Uh, I'm just talking about this, and I haven't talked about this with Rachel, so I'm sure I'll get home today and be like, are you serious that we got to start fasting? Um, and I'll be like, I think so. And then she'll be better at it than I am also. <laughs> but fasting primarily is about presence and participation. We, we get this wrong a lot. Like, 
when I first think of fasting, like even if even if I want to do it with like pure motives or like do it right, like somewhere somewhere deep down, I think that, that the reasons for fasting are to learn how to be tough or to learn how to do something hard. Like I'm tempted to want to jump into this discipline when I feel like my life is too easy and I don't do hard things for God, so I should fast. <laughs> or that fasting might somehow prove something to God. Like, I really am serious. This is maybe the equivalent of like, when I, <laughs> this is really kind of embarrassing. When I was a kid, I would like make like deals with God by like shooting free throws in the driveway. And like, God, if I make eight out of these next 10 shots, <laughs> like this, you know? And, and, I, and like somehow fasting becomes like that sort of rolling the dice or making deals. Or I also love like fasting. This happens especially at Lent, um, especially with my, my Catholic background. It's when you give up something that you already know that you shouldn't be doing. Like I gave up smoking for Lent or like I gave up biting my nails um, because it's better for you not to do those things, right? My brother went to a Catholic school, and, and, and so fasting was really big in college, which is the weirdest thing. Um, and and I remember going to one of his baseball games, and there were all these like college-age girls um, talking about how they gave up milkshakes for Lent. And I was like, guys, I'm not so sure about this. <laughs> the other thing fasting is not, um, fasting is not to try to get something or to learn something, or to gain something. Like there's, the, there are other biblical things and prayer disciplines in the Bible to like enter into a season in which you want to gain something. But like fasting is not a diet and it's not a hunger strike. Like you're, you're not trying to bend anything by fasting. Fasting is primarily about being present to Jesus and participating in his death. Like those, are, those are kind of the things that you get, even though you don't use fasting as an instrument. The, that's the purpose. One pastor wrote, wrote about, about how our desire plays in, and, and desire is a big thing that kind of gets, gets tamed, or, or frankly, it, it might surprise you what you realize about your own desires in the fast, but he says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. And I think that's that's what fasting might teach you. And I think that's good because, because somehow our desire for God can get curbed by other appetites. And I love that illustration, not poison, but apple pie, because fasting calls us to give up good things. Like, not bad things. But good things. Yeah. That somehow by us experiencing lack and hunger and silence, we might be renewed in God's abundance and provision in speaking in His Word. It's important to remember that fasting is different than a diet, or even different than like a kind of popular level of Christian uh, Lenten giving things up, because it's. When you fast, you voluntarily abandon something that is good, something that is necessary. We need food to live. It's maybe only small, and it's maybe only temporary, and it's maybe even artificial, but when we 
give up eating a meal or, or even a day's meals or maybe even longer than that. And, and I'm not calling for any like superheroism here. Like, like skip a meal and see if you don't feel it a little bit. When we do that, we participate in Jesus's death, even in a little way. Because if you start stringing meals together that you're missing or stringing days together, you're going to die. <laughs> like, so that little, that little practice, that little moment is just an emblem of participating in Jesus' death and also his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4 puts it like this. This is after that famous passage about how our bodies are jars of clay containing this treasure. But verse 10 says, we always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be revealed in our body. I think that's, that's the opportunity for a fast, that we might carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus. When you feel a hunger pain, that's what you're oriented towards. If you fast even from one meal, you'll feel it. You'll feel that vulnerability. You'll feel weakness. You'll feel human. And in that way, you'll feel that humanity that Christ took on to redeem. There should be some low-level awareness that, like, this is a little bit of a death. <laughs> like, and, and don't get too proud of yourself for, for this, right? Like, this is very low-level death. But I don't think this, this thing is like altogether different than baptism either when, when you start to think about it. And it's interesting that baptism and fasting are like have about equal, um, equal time and attention devoted to them in scripture, fasting and baptism. We, we hold up baptism as this amazing sign and seal of what God's doing, um, a, a visible, tangible um, sign of this invisible spiritual reality that we're buried with Christ and then raised with him. In, in some way, fasting is also that entryway into the life of Christ through death. Death to ourselves, death to our sin, death to all we've known. And more importantly, an entry into the death of Christ in our place for us. And then into the life of Christ so you get a vicarious death for you and also a vicarious life lived for you too. This makes me always think of that Christ hymn in Philippians 2. And, and Philippians praises Jesus for taking on humanity, for not considering equality with God as something to be grabbed at or exploited but that Jesus empties himself and becomes nothing. Jesus gives himself up. And I think fasting helps us also give up. We read through chapter 2 of Lamentations, and you find an extended discourse on giving up. If you read it through this week on, on that card, you'll see that there's a giving up of strength and security. I think fasting does this too. Try fasting when you're trying to train for a marathon or even if you're trying to sustain a child by nursing them. Fasting is going to 
do away with your strength in your security. Lamentation talks about giving up on pleasure and devotion, the Sabbaths and the festivals. It's an inevitable that your fast day will, will definitely fall on someone else's feast day. Hmm. You're going to be fasting at someone's wedding. That is how fasts always work, even if you plan them to a T. And you'll be pressured you can either give up your fast in order to not make yourself feel bad or not make others feel awkward or to resolve a little bit of fear or insecurity in yourself. Or you can keep at it and you can wind up that, at that wedding with an empty place setting in front of you. For me, years ago, it, I was doing a fast during Lent and I was coaching JV baseball and I had to take a team of ninth graders to a a minor league baseball game, and there was a burrito eating contest in the seventh <laughs> inning stretch, and we got picked. And if you know me, like burrito eating is my forte. This is <laughs> one of the things I'm best at in my life, and, and I couldn't do it. I, I, I left it on the table, and I left the, the opportunity to publicly shame our mouthiest pitcher in front of hundreds of people, you know. Uh, but inevitably, You'll give up on pleasure. You'll give up on devotion. Fasting also calls us to give up relying on ourselves, our strength, our righteousness, and to renew our reliance on God, even to give up our reliance on others in favor of relying on God who's, who's made us, who knows us, who knows how to redeem us and renew us. In the latter section of Lamentations 2, there's this like gauntlet. There's this gauntlet of people in whom the poet gives up hope on. Like this is the last half. This first Israel's own prophets don't even have instruction. Don't even have prophecy. I think there's a joke in there somewhere about like what do you call. Um, I couldn't help it. But then it talks about giving up hope in a passerby. Giving up hope in someone that might come to help you. Instead, they, they clap their hands and they whistle and they taunt at you and they say, could this be the city called perfect beauty, the joy of all the earth? Just mocking. And finally, they give up even on their enemies. Maybe there was a hope for a change of heart. You seem just poised to just leverage this and to devour, to do the worst thing, like worse things than they even feared. They say, this is the day we've always hoped for, and their day has come. What if our fasting allows us to like give up on ourselves and give up on the things that we're hoping for in others, like the ways we self-consciously construct our lives related to others? What if learning to deepen our physical and spiritual participation in Christ's death allows us to abandon our need to be, to, to be liked, to be, like, even in this, to be prophetic, to be the speaker, and instead lets us just sit and grapple with our sin, lets us just sit in silence? To give up on giving explanations and retorts, 
We give up on tying things in a bow. We give up on even getting to work to make things better. We, we just give that stuff up. That's part of the past. I think a, a lot about um, Dr. Cleveland's talk last week, and, and like part of me is just so like geared towards like let's let's attack that and like get better at those things, and, and like maybe maybe the call is instead to just like listen and sit in that and, and sit in that discomfort and sit in that posture of listening and openness and acceptance. We give up how we continually build our lives around the opinion of the passerby, too. They might admire and affirm us, because we realize from lamentations that when, when things are bad, they're just kind of like zoom by taunting us anyways. The, yet we spend most of our lives worried about what other people are thinking. And we give up continually having to build our lives up, like over and against enemies. <laughs> Because calamity does not change enemies. They're still enemies. And the worst things you fear are going to happen no matter how secure Jer Jerusalem's walls, which are now crumbled, are. We die to that. And instead, we, we get built up. Like in that breaking down, we get built up. And that is the mystery of our faith, is we get built up around a rejected stone that becomes a cornerstone. We die to receive life. We become poor to get riches. We, we join into this life of Jesus who knows sorrows, who suffers. And as you can tell, I was hanging out at the Rouault stuff at Duke Chapel, and this plate it's titled, Jesus will be in agony until the end of the world. And by doing something as small as fasting and praying, we tap into and join into that agony. Again, a small, oh my gosh, in a small way. Like, infinitesimally small way. But if we tap into that death, we also tap into that life. I want to <coughs> close, because I, I think you have a discussion about fasting, you should probably close with the fast that God desires, even in light of all the good things that we might conceive of and, and ways we might program this fast. And this is the fast that God has chosen, um, shown to us through the words of Isaiah. It says, Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke, so not to share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and to see the naked to clothe them, is it not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, and your light will break forth from the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry out for help, and he will say, Here I am. Pray with me. Father, we take amazing 
comfort in that pledge that you're here with us and in Christ and by your spirit you've chosen to be with us. Lord, renew us. Lord, open our eyes to the fact that that renewal might have to come by breaking us down. Help us participate in your death that we might participate in your resurrection and new creation that we might work with you to build brick by brick slowly and steadily this coming kingdom Lord we thank you that we needn't rely on ourselves or others we needn't rely even on good things to nourish us because we don't live on bread alone on the words of your mouth and the word that became flesh. We thank you, Lord, and pray all this in Jesus' name.